Our scripture verse this morning is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, uh, most people recognize that the days uh, are getting darker. And part of that is because we're approaching December 21. And the earth is on a certain tilt. It's the shortest day of the year when the days are the darkest. Now, of course, that's just part of this calendar year. But uh, many of us feel the darkness of the days in respect to the political upheaval we have in respect to the social unrest that we're experiencing, this pandemic. You know, it's affecting our church more and more, and people feel the weight of these dark days. And, you know, it's Advent that we need. Advent brings hope in the midst of darkness. When I speak about Advent, I'm talking about that part of the church calendar, the four weeks prior to Christmas, where we begin to consider the coming of Christ. That's what Advent means. It means coming. And of course, it refers to the coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom, but also the coming of Jesus to consummate his kingdom. Now, you know, this original advent was promised long before it happened in Isaiah. And, and not coincidentally, the advent was promised as light coming to darkness. We find this in Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Well, what is that light? Well, a few verses later, you read the, the passage where it says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In other words, there is hope in the midst of this darkness, and the hope is in the promise that a Messiah will come and will deliver. That's to encourage us. Now, you know, oftentimes when we're in difficult days, we tend to go nostalgic. We think about the good old days. Well, back when I was young, and it was so much easier and gentler and nicer then, and we always want to go back. There's nothing wrong with reviewing the, the mercies of God in your past and the memories that you have. And there are sweet things to remember. The problem with nostalgia is you forget about the difficulties. You forget about the hardships. And in many ways, that doesn't help you deal with the present. We need something real, something in space and time. And this is where Advent comes to serve us. This knowledge that Jesus has come is to help us. Now, Jesus has come. That's what this series is going to be. Why did he come? A lot of us think we know, and generally we may have it right to come to show us that he loves us and comes to be an example to us, and we may come up with some general reasons. But I want to drive a little deeper in terms of 
what actually did he come to do? And we see in our passage today that he's, he's come to save sinners. He's come to save sinners. I mean, when you think about that was the mission of Jesus. He came here to do that task. In, Mark, in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel is speaking to Joseph, and he's saying, listen, you're going to have a son, and you're going to give your son the name Jesus. And he tells him why. He says, because he will save his people from their sins. And then what we have in our passage here is Matthew's own testimony of what Jesus has come to do, which is to save sinners. Matthew is really kind of, if you have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, Matthew is telling us his own story. He becomes for us a living example of what hopefully most of us can also speak to. Yeah, he came to save me, a sinner. Let me tell you how he did it. That's what Matthew's doing here. So I, I want to frame up your mind in, in two areas. First, I want you to think about the radical nature of God's grace, God's kingdom. The radical nature. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to make three points under that to try to explain the radical kindness of God that you see in this conversion of Matthew. And then, so the, the, the kingdom of God is both radical, but it's also controversial. And we're going to see that with the response of the Pharisees, the religious people, the righteous people, the people that we often would think, they're the ones wearing the white hats. They're the ones that we're looking to for goodness and morality and rightness. That's where the controversy is going to be. So radical nature of the kingdom and then the controversial nature of the kingdom. Well, let's look first at the radical nature of the kingdom. And that's seen in this call of Matthew. Right? Look with me at 9.9. He says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So here we see Jesus, and by the way, his other call narrative in chapter 4, he's passing along the road as well. So Jesus is passing along the road, and he sees Matthew at a tax booth. Now, tax booths were placed on major trade routes so they could tax goods coming in and goods coming out. They were placed at the harbor. Goods coming across the lake, goods going... Uh, this is how the Romans raised their money. You know, they, they taxed goods. In this day and age, they even had a cartwheel task. We have the same thing, axle taxes on our freeways. And they tax these goods to raise up money so as to fund the initiatives of the government, the same now, to support the military. Uh, now what Matthew is doing is you know, the Romans would auction off the right to be able to collect taxes. And you'll see why in a minute they auctioned them off to the highest bidder. And they auctioned it to a Jewish person who knew the land, who knew the people. And what they would do is pay for this right to charge taxes. Now, the Romans would say, this is an agreed-upon sum that you are to pay us on a regular basis. And the tax collector would profit by what he overcharged. And so whatever he collected, he kept the difference. So you can see the system just lent itself to greed and extortion, bribery, thievery. This is why the tax collector was the most hated person in Israel at this time. Now, think about it for a minute. He's supporting, a he's supporting a foreign, uninvited government. That makes him a traitor. He's overcharging people for their goods. That makes him a thief. He's living lavishly off the backs of his own brothers. Makes him a betrayer. Makes him a, it makes him a, a hated individual, a social outcast. Now, tax collectors couldn't testify in court. Tax collectors were usually excommunicated from the community of faith. 
They were classified with murderers, with prostitutes, and with Gentiles. You believe? It's hard for us because we've heard this story before. We just like Matthew because he wrote a gospel. But let me try to paint it to you in a way that might make it him more odious as he would have been seen. So think about World War II and think about the Nazi collaborators. They worked with them. So many in the French, many French men and French women worked with the Nazis. They were hated. After the war, they were run out of town. They were social outcasts. Some of them were hung. I mean, profiting off your own people? Aligning yourself with the enemy? I mean, think about it. That's the person Jesus chose. That's the one that Jesus, out of all the crowds following Jesus, he says, I want you to follow me. I, I mean, you guys, if you don't feel it, you have, to, you have to bring yourself to recognize, that would have made me mad. That would have made me mad, and that would have made me question who this Jesus is. He's, he's been nice, he's been kind, he says nice things. I don't know that I like the man right now. That's what we ought to be thinking. But there's more that we ought to be thinking. I mean, the calling of Matthew reminds the modern-day listener that this gospel of salvation, this gospel, I tell you, it isn't based upon meritocracy. Our country, maybe, it isn't. Not on merit, not on value, not on social progress. He called Matthew to follow him. Matthew had nothing to bring. It shows the unfathomable kindness of God. Now, this is really a rub for some people. If you're not a Christian, this is troubling. And a lot of people struggle with Christianity, uh, and they, they say it's because of the lack of evidence that I have to believe. And that may be true for some, but for most, I think it's this kind of stuff that frustrates people. Are you telling me that nothing in me would warrant God looking upon me with favor? I mean, it's a clear declaration. By choosing Matthew as an example, that I'm not looking anything in you, as we're going to find out. I'm actually coming to help you. So it shows us the sheer grace of God, but calling of Matthew also shows us that sinners, I want you to hear me on this, sinners are targets of God's mercy. They're targets of his mercy. Does this challenge you? I mean, do, do you, when you tend to think about the, you know, the citizens of God's kingdom, would Matthew types fit into your paradigm? I mean, thieves and robbers and prostitutes and tax are, are those the people that you would see filling up the kingdom of God? Most of us would say no. But he chose Matthew. Maybe you've got friends right now that you think, yeah, they'll never come to faith. I mean, they're so far gone. Uh, God wouldn't even reach them. God's given up on them. Do you, are there people in your life that you feel that way? Or maybe you feel that way about yourself. Maybe you've committed some just sin that is so dirty and disgusting that you think God could never look upon you with favor. This is for you. Matthew is the example for us that he targets sinners. Listen, Paul did the same thing. Paul said the same thing. Listen to what he wrote to Timothy in the first chapter of the first letter. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see? Jesus is choosing Matthew. Jesus chose Paul as an example so that no one in here could say, you know what? I'm beyond his hand. I'm beyond. I've sinned so far beyond the amount of mercy that he has to give. I can't be saved. I want to offer this as hope to you. You know, we sang that song, Come Ye Sinners. The verse that I love in that song is, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. It's true. Because that's not the way you enter the kingdom. You don't enter the kingdom once you've kind of cleaned yourself up and now you feel kind of, you know, kind of good enough to come to God. I got to do something. I got to clean my life up a little bit. And then God will look differently at me. What he's saying with Matthew is that doesn't work for God's kingdom. Now you come poor and naked. You come weak and wounded. You come sick and sore. He's ready. He stands ready to save you. That's the message. That's the radical nature of the kingdom of God. I think we've lost it. I think we've lost the radical nature. We've been soaking in it so long that for him to call Matthew, it should cause us to go out and wonder, who is this Jesus? Radical, different than me. Totally counterintuitive. So that's the first thing you see about the radical nature of the kingdom, that it calls sinners like Matthew, like me. Uh, The second thing you see is that he calls sinners to follow him. He wants them to follow him. Look at the end of verse 9. At the call of Jesus, at the voice of Jesus, it says, and he rose and followed him. That's all we get. This is Matthew's gospel about Matthew's conversion. That's all we get. Why didn't he give us more? We don't have any details. Yeah, how much did they know each other? We can assume a few details. Matthew probably had heard of Jesus teach. Maybe he even heard of his miracles. They both were from Capernaum, and Jesus had a ministry that was well known at this point. But why the precious few details? Let me propose to you that Matthew wants us to focus on Jesus for a minute. Not about the dynamic, just about Jesus. That when Jesus calls, we see, number one, that it's at the initiation of Jesus. That we don't wake up one day. I need religion in my life. I have people that say to me, they have kids, they come in, they say, you know what? We've got to get some religion back in our lives for the kids. Now, I usually make some snarky comment like, well, don't you need it for yourself? But, but we, we think we move towards him because it's good for the family, it's good for morality, it's good for our lives. The initiation lays with Jesus, clearly. But not just that, there's power in the call of Christ. There seems to be some waking power when he says, follow me. You know, his voice raised Lazarus from the dead and gave him life. And his voice raised Matthew from the... He was dead, it it seems. His life, at least in terms of how God looks at this abundant life lived before God, he was dead. You see that he just got up. And Matthew paints as if Jesus says, follow me. And like a magnet, Matthew was drawn to the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his message. He just got up and followed him. And remember, we don't hear, Matthew doesn't tout his own, you know, the cost that he embraced to follow Jesus. He doesn't say anything about it. We learn from Luke's gospel that he left everything. He just got up and left. The tax booth, the money, the job, the future earnings, all the future security, he left it all. 
didn't complain, didn't fret about it, didn't worry about it. What am I going to do? What my job is? He didn't ask any of those questions. He just followed. That's the call of Christ. Not just that, but he left his thievery. He left his, he left his extortion. He left his bribery. He left everything. It was like a resurrection. This is why we talk about conversions being born again. Because it seems like you died to the old way of life, and now you're born again. And now out of Matthew's life is going to come righteousness and fruitfulness and faithfulness and obedience and love and worship. Now, now let me make sure there's balance here. Not every person in every conversion looks like this one. right? There's others in the Bible, such as Nicodemus. Nicodemus heard this call. He didn't come immediately, but he came ultimately, and he came totally. Or Matthew in the Bible. He learned the scriptures from infancy. When was his conversion? We don't know. So it's different for each, but it, they look the same in the sense that you relinquish control to Jesus. That, 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 that when you heed the call, you follow him. And do you consider yourselves followers of Christ? And do you consider yourself followers of Christ because of what you believe or because of what your life looks like? In other words, there's many people that believed in Jesus but didn't follow him. Now, I, I want to be clear here. We want to believe right doctrine. That's essential. But believing right doctrine, if it's not married up to following, that's a deadly disconnect. So do you actually follow him? I'm not asking, do you believe the right things? I, I trust most people meet with couples and I ask them about the nature of the gospel. They'll give me it, but they'll be living in a way contrary to the gospel. So I'm left with this dichotomy. Okay, this is what you believe, but this is how you live. Uh, so, so how do we reconcile that? So do you follow him? So just for a minute with me, just look at the relationships in your life. Look in your marriage and look at your friendships if you're not married. Do the words of Christ give guidance to how you speak, how you live, how you seek forgiveness, how you treat, how you offer forgiveness? Are, 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 there, are there marks of, you know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Are you following him in the way you conduct your business practices? the integrity that you use, that you speak with, the, the honor that you accord to the people that deserve it. Do you work diligently and hard for the money that you're paid? Or the way you handle your money? You know, do, do you handle your money in a way that accords with the words of Jesus? Talks about generosity. Do you find yourself generous? Do you tend to hoard and hold tight and not share? In other words, look at your life Those he calls, follow him. That's how we know we're his sheep. We know his voice, and we're trying to do what he says. This doesn't mean perfection. That's why repentance is such a glorious gift to the church. That when we fail to follow, we identify that. This is really a role for the church as well. It's hard for me to identify my blind spots. It's easy for me to justify my behavior. I, I need people... You know, asking people, what do you see in me that does not accord with what you see I believe or you hear I believe? That's not a wrong thing to do. It, it can be awkward. It can be a little disconcerting when you're inviting someone in to bring up a word that might not be, hey, you're doing a great job and you're a super guy. It, it, it may be a little difficult, but let me encourage you to consider that. We don't want to be deceived, thinking, well, I believe the right things, but our lives aren't following what we believe. 
The radical nature is that he calls, and those he calls, they actually follow. They do follow. May, faultingly, maybe falling down sometimes, skinning the knees, falling backwards, backsliding, coming back, repenting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of two steps forward and three steps back in the Christian faith. Uh, but they're, they're moving forward in that direction. The third thing you see that's radical about the nature of this kingdom is the celebration that Jesus does with sinners. I mean, look with me at verse 10. He says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, can you imagine this party? <clears throat> Matthew. If Matthew, I believe Matthew understood the darkness of his prior life, and he has received the call of God through the voice of the Son of God. He's understood the gospel. He's repented. He's believed. And now he has been forgiven. He feels like my life is new. That whole old, all those old, it's all washed away. I can become new. Can you imagine his joy? And he wants to celebrate. He, again, is not worried about his future. He is wanting to celebrate. And so what do you do when you celebrate? You call your friends. Now look at his friends. I mean, it's a real who's who of the community. I mean, think about it. Other tax collectors and other sinners. That word sinners is a stock term. It, it, it's kind of a collective term. It means prostitutes and thieves and all those people that have finally given up on trying to look moral for other people. they finally not worried about what you think about their sin. They've given themselves to it. They're not, they're not trying to earn your approval anymore by hiding their sins just sinners and jesus is hanging with them celebrating he's rejoicing with matthew and he's ministering to them the same gospel that saved matthew the big celebration it, it, it's it's to remind us of this banquet it, it's really a picture of what will be already in matthew chapter 8 he spoke about this new banquet coming where people from the east and the west would all come. Different people that you can't even expect will come and sit around the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he shows what that banquet will look like. A bunch of sinners hanging around Jesus, just thanking him for all that he's done. It's an incredible picture of what the kingdom is to be. This radical Savior bringing a radical kingdom, saving radical sinners who are celebrating with him. To what degree do you, if you're a Christian, to what degree do you rejoice over the gospel saving you? To what degree do you, do you thank the Son of God that you've been redeemed and forgiven of your sins? To what degree do you, do you marvel over the fact that you have been adopted by God and now the very death itself doesn't threaten you and doesn't you, but it releases you to be with the one that died for you. To what degree do you rejoice? Or has it become so familiar to us that it's like, yeah, it's the gospel. As, as if, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just the gospel. I mean, folks, I am subject to the same temptation that you are to just find it familiar. And I, I've got to almost take a pin to stick myself to wake me. I tend to want to go back, and I go back in my life and the dark things that I did. I, I, I do it just for smelling salts. I'm embarrassed about it. I don't, I don't like it, but it kind of wakes me up to where I was and where he has taken me. I, I, I do that to remind myself of something I can become familiar to. 
You know the story with Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. You'll find it in Luke chapter 7. I encourage you to read it towards the end of the chapter. But let me just tell you the story quickly. I got to say, it's almost, I think, one of my, yeah, it's probably one of my top five stories in the Bible. So Jesus is with a Pharisee named Simon. Simon is looking at Jesus a little suspicious, and they're talking, right? And then while they're having dinner talking, a woman, a prostitute, comes up to Jesus and begins weeping on his feet. And she's drying his feet with her hair, and she's kissing his feet. Now Simon begins to change his tune. He starts thinking, well, I was suspicious about this guy. Now I'm really questioning. Down, he's being defiled now by this woman. He's touching a sinner, which defiles Jesus in, Ma in Simon's mind. And so, of course, Jesus knows this, and he asks him, he says, let, uh, let me ask you a question. If there's a, if there's a money lender, and he has two debtors, one debtor owes him 500 denarii, and one 50 denarii. So one large sum and, and one relatively small sum. And if the money lender forgives them both of their debt, who will love him more? And Simon rightly assumes, well, the one with the larger debt. And then Jesus turns and says this to him in chapter 747. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The way we increase in our celebration over the gospel is to consider how much he has forgiven us. Now, we cannot know fully the depth of our sin until we see his holiness in perfection. But we can begin to understand in greater measure what he has saved us from. And we never want to let go of that. We never want to forget that. You know, John Newton, of course, you know the name, the, the writer of the amazing hymn, uh, um, yeah, the amazing hymn called Amazing Grace. Um, on his tombstone, even on his tombstone, he hasn't forgotten what he was delivered from. So in 1807, when he was buried in only England, on his tombstone, it still reads, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, appointed, to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. This is why we gather each Sunday, to celebrate what he's done for us, to remind ourselves that he has come to save sinners of whom we are maybe not the foremost on a horizontal level, but in great need of this Redeemer in great need. We need to encourage one another in this. It's easy to get into the pressures of the day. The darkness of the day comes on, and we forget that he came to save sinners. We have a secure hope. We have a certain hope. Politics are going to change. Countries are going to change. Powers are going to change. The church will exist forever. Christ is ahead of it. We'll be with him forever. There's no threat to that. So, so this is the radical nature of the kingdom that I want to wake you to. He has come to save sinners. Boy, if that doesn't startle you, you really want to go back and ask God, wake me, wake me. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, awake, O sleeper, awake, O sleeper. But there's a controversial aspect to this kingdom. Uh, and it comes because of this party of all things. Look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, And when Jesus reclined at the table in the house, sorry, look at, with me at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, why 
the Pharisees are asking the disciples, most likely they didn't want to go into the house to defile themselves with such sinners. And they asked these disciples. Now, remember, Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees would separate themselves from those who were sinful or those who were spiritually apathetic or those who were poor followers of the law. They would separate themselves. Why? Well, they didn't want to defile themselves. They didn't want to contaminate themselves. Now, before we kick the Pharisees to the curb too quick, remember the laws in the Old Testament were often designed so as to help Israel not be contaminated by the nations around. We have the same thought. You know, birds of a feather flock together. That's what you tell your kids. Be careful who you're hanging with. One bad apple can spoil the whole barrel, you know. You don't put a good apple in with bad apples. It doesn't make the bad apples good. It's the bad apples that make the good apple bad. Uh, so avoid those people. And these Pharisees were great at that. They separated themselves. They followed this ritual, outward performances. Here's the problem with the Pharisees. Uh, they put people in the classes. You know, there are sinners and there are saints. And there are, uh, there are the, the wicked and there are the virtuous. And they, of course, were the righteous ones. But here's the problem. They only looked at it externally. They didn't see their own inward stain and pollution. And so they looked at the outward shape. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're doing it right. We've got to stay away from them. We've got to separate from them so we don't get contaminated. Forgetting that the, that the sins and the seeds of sin were present within their own souls. And so Jesus confronts them in 12 and 13. And he says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is doing is he's confronting them. He's saying, you have misperceived your own spiritual health. You've only looked at the outward. You haven't seen the inward. It's like me saying, I've never committed adultery. That's true. Does that make me righteous? Well, I've lusted plenty. So, I mean, does that mean that because I haven't done this, but the fact that I have lusted, they never went inward. He said, you don't even, you don't even know where the seeds of sin lie. But they also missed the mission of the Messiah. They missed that Jesus was coming to save sinners. That's why he says, you know, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. Any doctor with his, weight in, with his weight and salt would be with sinners. He's with the sick. He's seeking to heal the sick. That's what messiahs do. They go to sinners to see them saved. They've missed that. That's why Jesus says, go and learn. Go and learn. You know, don't miss the irony of that. For Jesus to tell religious teachers, go and learn, He's saying to them, you haven't got a true sense of what I'm even about or what the kingdom of God's about. You've got to go and learn. Uh, they had failed to see their own need, the true sense that they had. One author said it this way, theirs is not a failure of intelligence, but a failure in imagination, in that they could not imagine themselves as sick like the rest in need of God's healing. They couldn't imagine it. I can't be that bad. Don't, don't we often feel, I'm not near as bad as these other people. I don't look as bad. I don't live like they do. I'm not so filthy. I'm not so knee-deep in sin. I can't be that bad. It's so hard to believe, isn't it? And Jesus says later in Matthew 21 to these Pharisees, he says, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and sin prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
because our lives are so cleaned up, we don't think we need it. This is the controversy of the kingdom. Sinners are getting in, and the righteous are not. They're not getting in. Blind to their own need, and so they don't run poor and naked, weak and wounded to him. Look at my lie, I'm cleaned up, I look sharp, you know. I don't need that, because we look at the externals. C.S. Lewis, I've quoted this a bazillion times, but prostitutes are in no danger of finding the present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. You don't have to tell a prostitute life is really lousy. You, you don't have to tell her that. He says the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. This is the controversy of the kingdom. It's a warning to the religious. It's a warning to those who are righteous. It's a warning to those who are cleaned up, who perceive themselves healthy. The warning is that we need to go and learn is that don't be blind to your self-righteousness. Don't be blind. Do you recognize this is the rub for us because we just think that we can't be that bad to need that kind of help. And this is, this is what we need to come to grips with if we're going to understand why he came. That we really are sinners in need of his grace. So when Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wrote a, he wrote a little catechism for parents to teach children. And he starts this catechism with the Ten Commandments. He doesn't start with the gospel. The great reformer of the church, the great bringer of the gospel, kind of pulled, the, pulled all the you know, all the wrapping around the gospel that had happened over the Middle Ages, and, and he kind of exposed the gospel in all of its glory, he starts with the Ten Commandments. Why? Because he knows that until we get a handle on the perfection of God and His holiness and how far we are from that, we can never understand the gospel. So he taught the Ten Commandments, and then he went into the gospel so that we could appreciate it and understand the gospel. Do you realize how much you need the gospel? Even now you need the gospel? Even if you're a Christian here, you still need the gospel. J.C. Rao, when he made comments on this passage, he said, sinners we are in the day we first come to Christ. Poor needy sinners we continue to be so long as we live, drawing all the grace we have every hour out of the fullness of Christ. Sinners we shall find ourselves in the hour of our death and shall die as much as indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. We'll always need his grace. We'll always need the gospel. I pray that that stirs your soul to greater appreciation. I don't want any in this hearing to not recognize their absolute need, to, to, to not fall prey to this trap of Phariseeism that somehow we're blind to our own self-righteousness. But then secondly, I would ask you, don't be blind to the extension or the, the, the need for others to have mercy. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We need to be merciful to other sinners. We need to, um, to check our lives to see, do we look at people in class distinctions? Do, do we look at people as sinners and, and righteous? I, I'm not saying do we look at people as truly children of God or not, but do we value people uh, based on how deep they are in sin and how we're not? You know, it's an amazing thing about the Pharisees. They separated themselves thinking they would not be contaminated. They thought that holiness would come from separation. We do the same thing as parents. We often think we're going to keep our kids from these evil influences, and that way our kids will grow up holy. The seeds of sin are in the hearts of the children. I'm not saying you don't exercise caution in the influences that they have, but it's only the gospel that cleans the soul. It's not separation. 
So that's why Jesus touches the leper. They'd say, you never do that because it defiles you. But Jesus is coming to purify. So when he touches a leper, he doesn't get defiled. She becomes pure. When he hangs out with sinners, he doesn't get defiled. We don't adopt their lifestyle. We're bringing the gospel to them so that we can then see them become pure. The gospel is what purifies, not separation. This is the incredible nature of why. We don't shirk back and shrink back and separate from the neighbor that is just a wild liver. No, we go there, not adopting the lifestyle, but bringing the hope of the gospel to them. So as opposed to us making sure we feel comfortable because we're, bring, we're keep, keeping up our, our kind of external ritual standards, no, in fact, we're bringing the gospel to them. That's what he, Jesus came to save sinners. We are sinners who have been saved. And now, freely we have received, freely we give. That's what Christmas is about. It's a great time to encourage others to consider the greatness of God and sending a son whose very name means the Lord saves. So we have this radical kingdom, radical kingdom. Jesus saves sinners, right? He saves sinners, he calls them to follow him, and he celebrates with them. And then we have this controversial nature of the kingdom. Might be a point for us to give thanks to God today, or perhaps to repent. But don't let this sermon go just in your ears now. Speak about it. Ask one another, do you see me following you know, use the words of this text really for the sanctification of your own soul and those that are around you. Let me pray for us and then we'll prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for uh, having a kindness that is beyond our category. Uh, we don't understand it. It's not intuitive to us that you would, you would move towards those that we would move furthest from, you move closest to, and yet we are that one. Father, help us to see. Just begin to reveal to us the incredible mercy that you have drawn us. That y you can take a Matthew and make him a gospel writer. God, who, who is beyond your reach, not just to save, but to change and to, and to be one of those with whom you celebrate? Oh, Father, grant us mercy to understand this. And for those that, that need this hope, this news of you saving sinners, Father, grant to them everything they need to have their eyes open, to not tarry till they're better, but to come poor and naked. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, let me, if I can, with the sermon in mind, orient you to the the bread and the cup that we're about to celebrate. You know, the, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup, you know, th there's no shortage of, of all the promises and truths that it contains. You know, normally we look at it as pointing backwards to Christ and his substitutionary work, right? That, that when you look at the bread, you're reminded, okay, the bread is representing his body with our sins laid upon him was crushed under the righteous judgment of God redeeming us. And when you look at the cup, you see the cup representing the blood of a new covenant, a covenant that didn't have to be repeated every year. It was a new covenant established in the perfect blood of Christ 
so that God's forever for me. He'll be forever for me. Why? Because the redemption of Christ's death leads to the adoption of this new covenant. We're now children of God. He's our father. We may disappoint him. He may bring discipline to him. We never stop being a son or a daughter to him. So we've been adopted. But remember, we do want to look back when we look at the bread and the cup, but we do want to look forward, particularly in our text, because the cup and the bread and the celebration of this is to be kind of a foretaste for what we will have with him on that final day. I don't say this to make it work with the sermon. This is what Jesus said. Uh, at, the, at the Last Supper, at, around the table with his disciples, he said in Mark 14, he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Why does he say it? Because he knows he's going to die the next day. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He is telling us, he is promising us, there will be a day again coming that he will drink wine again with us. He will break bread and he will drink wine. This table that we celebrate is a monthly reminder. There comes a day. You know, we long for this COVID craziness to be finished, don't we? We long to get rid of the masks. We long to start getting together and people and getting close. We won't complain about personal space being invaded anytime soon. We long for good things to come. Do we long for this? Can we not long for that day when we'll see him? Celebrate? where every tear will be wiped away. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, none of that. We'll be around a table with the one who has come to save sinners and make all things new and make all things beautiful. That's a day to long for. Let's just take a few moments and, and just silently speak to God, speak to him, maybe confession, maybe repentance, it may be just seeking greater grace but appeal to him now for him to open your eyes to the glory of this bread and this wine and all that it means that he has come to save sinners. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.